to Innovativeness, a podcast where we uncover unexpected ideas and their thinkers. This episode is a little different because it's focused on the preservation of language and culture. Today we are speaking with Inky Gibbons, founder of Tribal Lingual, an online platform that teaches endangered languages. Originally from Mongolia, Inky grew up in a gare, otherwise known as a yurt. She studied languages, language endangerment, and anthropology at Leeds, Glasgow, Aberdeen Universities, and taught Mongolian and Russian at SOAS, University of London, for many years. After a spell at a few London-based edtech startups, she took the inevitable plunge and founded Tribal Lingual to tackle the big social issue that motivates her, that of language and cultural loss around the world. There are different facets of culture roughly broken up by UNESCO into two camps, tangible and intangible. UNESCO says by the end of the century, more than half of the 7,000 languages of Earth could disappear. Ultimately, Inky's vision here is really that in order to preserve language in danger of becoming obsolete, one must create a platform that teaches the language from an indigenous perspective, including both the tangible and intangible aspects of culture to really have any staying power. If you have ever visited a country without being able to speak its language, one is struck by the fact that people live differently, have different food and culture. From this perspective, we can understand that culture is a nuanced and beautiful thing that requires nurturing and communication. When a language disappears, the utility of being able to relate to and within all the richness of that language, i.e. its culture, often disappears as well. Amazing stuff that we cannot get back. And if this world is going to be able to make progress and continue to innovate, it's absolutely essential that we recognize the fragility of culture as well as the importance of preserving it through its native tongues. And we are joined today by Inky Gibbons. She is the founder of Tribal Lingual. Hello, Inky. Hello. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Good, good. Yeah. Good. Enjoying some nice weather over here in New Jersey. How is it uh, where you are? <laughs> it is very sunny. Oh, good. Uh, which is quite unusual. But yeah, it, well, it was raining yesterday, but it's sunny now. That's yeah, good. much like yeah. we've had lots of thunderstorms here. And uh, so we can share the sun now. So that's good. Yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> and you're over in the UK. <laughs> yes, I'm here in Cambridge. And I think it was um, end of term for everyone yesterday. Oh, nice. So, yeah, you could see students opening up bottles of champagne and, oh, cool. you know, happy to have their exams over and done with. I can imagine. That's a good feeling. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, so we're here today to talk to you about tribal lingual, obviously, and um, just how you got started and um, really took on this endeavor is so interesting. And we'd love for you to share a little bit more about it and how you got involved with it um, and what really brought you to start Tribalingual? Sure, yeah. So um, <clears throat> did you want me just to give you a brief intro to what Tribalingual is as well? Sure, that yeah. sounds perfect. Yeah, yeah. so uh, so Tribalingual is um, the world's first profitable business um, that was set up explicitly to save the world's intangible cultural heritage. Um, and what we mean by intangible cultural heritage, uh, well, so UNESCO divides um, cultural her heritage, I don't know if you know this, into um, tangible and intangible. So tangible are things like monuments, buildings, bridges, you know, historic artifacts, historic places, that type of thing. And intangible cultural heritage um, thing, uh, includes things like uh, language, um, songs, music, dance, um, poetry, 
um, ceremonies, that type of thing. Um, so everything that's really intimately linked with a person's identity um, and a culture's history. Um, so there are 7,000 languages spoken in the world today, um, and over half of those are going to disappear by the end of the century. Um, and that's not something that we want um, to see happen. Um, everybody at Tribalingual wants to do something about that and wants to help save um, intangible cultural heritage. And that's why um, yeah, the company was founded, right. why it was set up. Yeah, UNESCO um, lists about 2,500 languages on the endangered list, which is interesting. I never knew there was a list. Um, yes, that's right. Yeah. And what does it mean really to be an endangered language? Yeah, so um, endangered, uh, I mean, a lot of people think endangered language means that it has very, very few speakers left. Um, that is true. Um, but the main reason why a language is classified as endangered because is because it's not being transmitted um, to the younger generation. So you can have an endangered language that has 10 speakers, but you can also have an endangered language that has 5 million speakers. So it doesn't necessarily depend on how many speakers you have. It's just, you know, is that language being taught in schools? Um, are our children growing up using it and learning the language um, with their peers, with their parents, that type of thing? So, I mean, that's that's interesting. So the language, in order for it to actually have a, a place where it, it it's identified, so it's intangible yet... They're, they're, they have way to measure whether or not it's it's being interacted with. That's right. Yeah, and, because and exactly. So because, um, as I say, you know, speakers can then, um, it, it, you know, if, for example, we take, uh, you know, the um, say, for example, where my family come from, which is um, the Buryat Republic, you know, the speakers are then shifting to speaking Russian, which is the majority language. Um, and they then not using the Buryat language, which is their local language as much. Um, so everything, um, politics, education, that's all spoken in Russian. So gradually they start losing the ability to communicate in Buryat. Right. And that was the inspiration really for Tribolingual for you. As I understand it, your maternal grandparents um, spoke Buryat and you, were, you learned that it was endangered um, yes. and you wanted to do something about it. That's right. And how much of a component for the sake of understanding how language is utilized is this also the the writing of the language besides the speaking of it? Yeah. So, I mean, if we take a look at Buria again as an example, I mean, everything is written in Cyrillic. Um, and it's the same with Mongolian, actually, because even though Mongolia was never part of the Soviet Union, it was still a satellite of the Soviet Union. So, you know, they still had to, they were still um, encouraged, shall we say, you know, to... Um, use the Cyrillic alphabet. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, when we write in our own language, um, we're using the Cyrillic alphabet to communicate, whereas Mongolia have, you know, they have their own script, which is actually gradually being introduced back into mainstream education. Um, because that is quite important for them. Um, and if you talk, speak to Buryats, um, ac Buryat activists in the Republic of Buryatia, you will quite often, they, they, you know, they want to be able to, they are they want to learn the old Mongolian script because for them, that's really important when it comes to their identity. You know, they are Mongols, they're Buryat Mongols, and they want to be able to learn, uh, sorry, um, write and read in their language. Right. So the cultural identity of a people is not just predicated upon customs that, that they, you know, partake in, but primarily one of the larger facets for them to 
be a part of their culture and their heritage is to speak the language of that culture. Yes, to speak the language of that culture in order to then understand the culture, the 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 culture and the customs, and as I say, the the poems and the songs and the music. Right. right. That's the way that it resonates, and and that's also the way that they. It, it's like holding on to identity, but it's also holding on to a different way of of thought. Right. So, I think previously we had talked about there being words that there are words in different languages that are difficult to translate to others. Yes. Because they're talking about details and they're 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 expressing things that are not necessarily exclusive to that language but definitely have approached the concept that they're talking about in a way that resonates within that culture. Could you give an example of that? Uh, so expressions you mean that are untranslatable into English? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there are a few different examples. I mean, one is, I think I gave this last time, which was about, uh, well, the Mongolian word for ikdute, um, which means um, it's it's not even a word that you can translate. It's just a feeling you get, this feeling that you get when something is um, incredibly cute, you know, and you, you just get the feeling that like you see something really cute and you have that feeling and you say, oh, wow, that's really ikdute, which is not something, it's not, you know, it's not, you can't translate it as cute because that doesn't do it justice. Um, there are some words in our, um, in some of our other languages that we offer on our platform, um, not so much untranslatable, but the way you, so for Ainu, for example, the word for hello, which is Iran karakte, which means uh, hello, um, and translating that into English um, gives the meaning of, um, you know, so, so it gives you a spiritual meaning, you know, let, like, let me touch your spirit or let me touch your soul. So it, it's a ah. much deeper meaning than just, you know, your usual hello. Right. And th- I mean, th- what's what's so very interesting about that is that there's an intention to work. Yes. That oftentimes, though, and like speaking this language, I'm speaking now English. It's the only, unfortunately, one that I speak. But a lot of the times thinking just sort of just comes out of the mouth. Yeah. Right. So I, I grab at words and those words fulfill my, my thought process. But with some language, and this could be in English as well, when you're using a word in particular that you think about, that you're trying to explain a sensation that's happening or a moment, that that stands for more, accounts for more. So it's more of, it's more of a comprehensive moment of how you're using a word. And I'm trying to think of an example in English, and guess what? I can't. But, I mean, it's very interesting because... That also ties into something we had talked about before, Inky, which is that when people speak different languages, they also may have a different process of thinking as a result of the way that that language works for them. Yes, I would agree with that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So like, in other words, you, you know, if you're trying to get across a certain point, you know, and you might think about it in one way for one language and another way for another language? I think this, this gets into a strange um, place simply because it's very abstract as a notion. It's almost like saying one word elicits, when you use it, elicits like a, a whole 
array of things like, you know, almost color or also um, the sound of it, the way that you really like onomatopoeia, when, when somebody makes a word to sound like the thing they're talking about, mm. that with also the other aspect of this intangible, which is to say that if you say hello to someone, you're talking about touching their soul. So is that more of a spiritual way to say hello? If that word is exchanged, you know, continuously, doesn't it start to lose that? Or maybe it doesn't. And maybe this is more about how the culture's tied into it. Because when you say hello to somebody, you really mean yeah. that you deeply want to say hello to them. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So when you're saying that word, you you know what that word means, you know, that you know the meaning behind it. I was thinking like in Mongolian, it's very similar, you know, to say hello, you you have to say, are you well? You know, so there's no just hello and that's it. You know, it's a question, you know, are you well? And you have to answer that because they're genuinely interested in finding out how you are. Right. Um, which is not something that you do, obviously, in, in English. You know, mm-hmm. just say hello, hello, yeah, see you later. Um, but yeah. You have to say hello, how are you? You have to say hello, how are you? But generally, you know, you could just get away with just saying hi, hi, and then, you know, just walk past each other on the street. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if you say it in Mongolian, you can't really. You have to say, you know, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? And how are you? You know, so you sort of stop and have a conversation. It invites more uh, response, in, in other words. Y- yeah. Yes, yeah. Right. Okay, so that that's so if you take something like, texting on on mobile phones Mm. that is a completely different um pattern for how we use language it's it's even it's even more brief it's it's as brief as they go right so Mm. lol right i mean that one gets me every time i see it because I never picture somebody actually laughing out loud i think it's a disingenuous response i think yes i i think so as well yeah (laughs) i don't know sometimes i do (laughs) (laughs) and then it's like what else do you put (laughs) it's like that it's like hi it's like hi how are you of i just appreciated that but i appreciated so many things with lol that it really just then becomes well if it's overused it becomes less less, Mm. um, genuine for sure yeah but but i guess the point is inky is what's interesting about what you've done is you're using technology, the platform of technology to connect people. And and thank goodness, because technology, when it's used for the greater good, is very powerful. But I also feel like what we've adopted in the last 20 years, aka mobile phones, really they have eroded a good deal of our ability to communicate with each other, even though you would think it would be the opposite. It's just like social media. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, I remember writing a paper on the Buryats and their use of the Buryat language um, online. Um, And I thought that was interesting because, you know, all I did was kind of analyze their their, um, conversations within online forums, you know, like chat forums, um, because I wanted to just see, you know, how often they use the Buryat language as opposed to using Russian. And quite often these forums, they have different um, topics, um, so you can click on, say, the topic of politics, and then you can, you know, write whatever you want to do, whatever your opinion is on on that particular topic. Or, um, you know, you have the fa- the topic of home and family uh, or food. Um, and what the data showed was really that Buryats, when they're talking about politics and they're talking about education, they use Russian. 
But when they talk about food or when they talk about family, or when they're talking about, um, I don't know, music or whatever, they use Buryat with a bit of Russian interspersed because, you know, not many of them speak fluent Buryat. Um, so they kind of, they, they code switch between Russian and Buryat. Um, but it was just interesting just to see how much of an effort they put into writing in Buryat when it came to these sort of family home um, topics or scenarios. Yeah, that, I mean... But that can also be maybe um, explained by the fact that their language isn't proficient enough in Buryat to talk about politics. I mean, that's also possible. But I think also just they feel, you know, they feel something when they're talking about the family and the home, when they're talking about Buryats. Okay, they really want to use their own, their their language. Right, it's more of an emotional connection. Closer to the heart. I think so, yeah. And what I find interesting about tribal lingual is that you're not just teaching the language, you're teaching the culture. I mean, you know, talking about how language and culture are so intertwined. Um, and can you just tell us a little bit about some of the courses and, and ways in which, you know, you offer different perspectives into the language and the culture? Yeah, so actually somebody yesterday, I gave him a talk yesterday, and somebody was saying, ah, but you can't really teach a language in four weeks, can you? And I was saying, no, we can't, you know, that's not what we're saying we can do, you know. So I think a lot of people still think that what we're doing is teaching language. And what we're saying to people is, you know, we are teaching language, but only as a gateway to understanding the culture. So we work very closely with the native speakers and the community members when we're creating our online courses, um, because they know the culture better than we do. Uh, so what we ask for them, what we ask of them is to provide us with um, topics um, or themes that are really important for that particular culture. Um, so, you know, and, and generally these can be these these they're, they're similar from culture to culture, you know, food, music, ceremonies, um, weddings, festivals, like things like that. Um, so whatever they think would be really interesting for an outsider, but also something that um, is important to them um, as part of their own identity, then that's something that we work together to um, create, to create these particular topics. So all our courses are four weeks long and each week is then divided into a particular theme. Um, so week one will be food, week two will be um, music, week three will, you know, and so on. Um, and within that, we obviously teach the language, but, you know, the cultural, there's a lot of culture in there, you know, so you're basically, yeah, I, the, 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 this, there's a lot of culture that's um, a lot of, you know, historical context um, you know, talking about when it's talking about food, you know, the, the the main dishes that are important to that particular culture, you know, why is this important and things like that. So going much more sort of further into why somebody should care about this um, when it's associated with this particular culture. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, some of your, so most of your courses are four weeks, as you said, but some of them are longer, right? Because you have like a Globetrotter Mongolian course that's like 10 weeks. So a little more in depth. That's right. Yeah. I mean, that really depends on, you know, who our customers are. So usually the four week courses are tailored for um, travelers who are going visiting these uh, the, the countries um, and the, the longer ones. We've usually had academics or linguists or anthropologists take these courses because, you know, they're normally going on field work and they're going to spend much longer there or as I say, they're linguists. They want to get to grips with the grammar a little bit more. Um, whereas if you're a traveler, you don't really worry too much about speaking the language fluently when you're there you just worry about you know saying along and yeah connecting with the locals and you know not making a fool out of yourself right I know there was one um 
gentleman that you had taught, I think it was Mongolian. He was going to Mongolia and he was a vegan. And um, you were trying to help him explain to the people there who may not understand veganism, you know, what that is. And also you taught him, I think, a song to endear him more to the people. Um, so things like that, I suppose, where yes. he needs to know how to get along, basically. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that one thing I forgot to say was also, you know, you have these four week online courses, but with each week you have the opportunity to Skype with a native speaker as well. So that also adds the cultural element. You know, you're speaking with somebody who's based in that community. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Getting a one-on-one. Yes. Right. So it's a conversational approach. You know, something that so for, for all of these languages on the platform, they all also do they, how do they go about um, reconciling the grammatical aspect of the written language? What, what, do you, what, what do you mean? I mean, we do teach grammar. You do? Okay. We do teach grammar, but not to the extent, I mean, in our four-week courses, we don't go into conjugating verbs in Mongolian, for example. Yeah. Um, But in our 10-week course, we would do. Right. I I guess that's the thing that I'm most um, terrified of, which is grammar when it comes to learning a language, and that it usually what happens is it becomes a mechanism to understand the the formal written aspects of it and often to deal with tense and also male and female. And so it's very different from language to language. And um, it also, so it can get in the way of itself, I think. I mean, that's what I, you know, I think a lot of people had experienced in, it's become more sophisticated and like certainly travilingual is an example of that sophistication in a platform that is teaching conversational because that's really the way to engage first and then also immerse yourself into certain aspects of the culture to really get an I, I you know an identity of what that thing is that you're trying to almost you know become a part of right so whereas the grammar usually is the side of things that it, it it's more mathematical in an approach in a way um and uh cold yeah i mean i think that's right i mean i think a lot of people get put off learning these languages because they think oh no you know I'm just going to be saddled with all this grammar and I've got to learn as you say all the different tenses and oh no if it's a gendered language that's even worse and you know if it's tonal then god forbid you know I can't I'm not gonna be able to do this in four weeks but you know what we're saying is it's it's actually we're learning with us is very straightforward you know you don't have to worry about that too much I mean it is important obviously you know to know whether the verb goes on the end of Mongolian um and just to be able to speak correctly (laughs) but I mean that one you get I mean that one is just that is explained very easily online um and by practicing with a with a speaker you know how you should yeah what's the right way to speak I mean, we just haven't had, we haven't, you know, all our customers have been incredibly happy with um, the way they're taught. Yeah. Because, yeah, because because our customers aren't linguists, you know, they aren't, I, I mean, most of them haven't really probably learned a language before. So, but they're going, they want to learn because they want to go out there and meet locals. Right. But, I mean, I, I would imagine the most effective it's almost like the importance of silence. Learning a language is uh, probably even a great, to a greater extent, listening than necessarily even speaking. I think you had said that at one point you were trying to learn, I believe, was it Mandarin Chinese? Yes, yep. 
and that you had expressed, I mean, I'll, I'll let you take it from here, but you had said that the written form of it, you were having some difficulty with until you actually lived there. And then all of a sudden things started to make sense. That is correct. But that was because I was speaking with locals. You know, I was immersed in the environment. I couldn't get away not speaking, not speaking uh, Chinese. Right. So you think maybe because you were speaking it and you were immersed in it, then when you actually saw signs and all of these different, um, you know, forms of the of, of written Mandarin, that it just started to be an associative thing and you just started to get it. I think so. And I mean, Chinese characters also, they, they all have meaning associate you know behind the characters you know so i think because if you don't know if you don't know what the character or the meaning behind the character then i think it's very difficult to memorize it you know yeah. but then when you know okay this is the character and it stands for woman um and the character for mother is this and the art and for aunt is this they all use you know it's a similar cat you know so you start associating it with it, but then you you don't you know you have to learn vocab in order to be able to you know learn the characters and associate it with actual words it's right before you so it's like vocabulary cards from reality mm. yeah you know? that's right yeah i mean I, I honestly i'm fascinated by cyrillic and also um uh, chinese characters i mean just any language that has that's written that's different than the way that uh, english is written because it does look like there's so much detail often in the execution of just one character. So I, it almost is, and it insinuates to me that there's more about that thing to be explained than just maybe merely a sound. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, it can be intimidating for sure because it's just so foreign to anything that, that you know, English offers. Right. At the same time, I think too, Inky, that I find, you know, in many different subway rides that I've taken in Manhattan um, in my childhood and more recently, when I hear a language, I don't know what language even it is, mm -hmm. the musicality of it. There's, there's other input that it offers, even without understanding it, that is unique to that language. And of course, depending on how gifted somebody is in speaking it. Mm -hmm. You know, that side of it is, is it's this weird, it's something that's not defined as much. But I think that it is really also relevant to the cultural differences that, you know, one person that speaks Spanish versus one pe person that speaks um, like, a, let's say, Brazilian. Um, you know, there's just, there's, there's a difference in the music. There's a difference in the cadence. There's, a, there's and, and that in of itself is very important, I feel. Yes, I would agree with that. <laughs> I mean, some people, some people don't even can't even tell the difference between languages, though. I mean, you do you do get oh, is, is it Russian? Is it Portuguese? Is it Hebrew? I mean, you know, they just sometimes people get quite confused. And the yeah. less familiar you are with different languages, I think the more confusing it can be. I think that's right. Yeah. But you are fluent in four languages. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So what, what are those languages? Uh, Mongolian, Russian, English, and Chinese. And I was learning Hungarian for a little bit as well. Wow. Which was, which was interesting. It was very, very, very um, yeah, was very much like Mongolian, the sentence structures and the words, some of the words. Yeah. And is there a particular language you're wanting to learn in the future? 
and <laughs> not really no uh buryat yeah. as the same buryat would be quite nice yeah, but um, yeah. apart from that <laughs> to teach you like, I, I think as exactly I yeah i still need to find that that one person yeah, yeah. the thing that started it all but exactly so here's a really weird question yeah go on. if you had to write a play utilizing the four languages you know how would these languages talk to each other <laughs> I mean, I know it's not, it's not a question that you can really answer, but it just does, it's kind of a compelling thing that you have in your brain four separate languages that you can speak fluently. Um, do, is, there ever, is there ever a moment in which you're looking to say something and it comes out in a different language? No, not usually, because um, I'm quite aware of who I'm speaking to, if that's what you mean. So yeah. if... If I'm speaking to an English person, there's never a time when I blurt something out in Mongolian or Russian or anything like that. Um, but if I'm speaking to a Mongolian person who's lived for a very long time in the UK, then yes, I would probably code switch. Right. So if you were speaking to someone in Mongolian, do you ever in your mind like think it in English before you say it in Mongolian? No. No, no. Okay. And actually, I mean, I was thinking about this before, and I think... Sometimes I think I wouldn't be a particularly good um, translator because I always I, I, I always used to find this, you know, when I was at school and we had to, uh, in Russian, in, in the Russian school, we had to memorize poems. You know, that was, that was one of the, um, one of the, uh, yeah, poet, Russian poetry was a subject and we had to, each week we had to memorize a poem. And I always used to find it very incredibly difficult translating that poem into English. Uh, we didn't have to, but just trying to explain it because I couldn't do it even though I knew exactly what the poem meant, I found it really difficult to translate it into English. And even now, you know, I can't do, I mean, my mother is a, you know, synchronous interpreter. She can, as I'm speaking, she can then interpret into another language. I can't do that. Wow. So do you think that's because of the grammar aspect? No, I think it's because I learnt the language um, as a native speaker. I think if you learn a language... Um, at school or at university, then I think it makes it much easier for you to translate, um, hmm. but, you know, and work, uh, you know, and be an interpreter. But I think if you grew up speaking, like I did, Mongolian, Russian, and English, I can't, you know, that's not something I, you know, I, I can't do anyway. Maybe somebody else is just going to, you know, is going to no, I speak three languages fluently. You know, I grew up speaking three languages and I can do it fine. But that just personally, I've always felt that a bit of a struggle. Sure. I mean, I, I, so my new name for you is Inky of Four Brains. <laughs> because you have four different languages in your brain. And then also, here's a question for you. Um, do you ever, like, so of those four languages, you, given the example of cultural immersion, right, that you're trying to um, champion here, of those four languages, are are you? Do you feel like you're, you know, you have that fluency within the culture of that language that you speak? Yes. Oh wow. Yes, I mean, I yeah, I do, I do. I mean, more so, more so with obviously Mongolian, Russian, and English. Yeah. Um, Chinese is something I had to learn, but then, as I say, I lived there for two, two and a bit years. Um, so, you know, that was a big part of my life. You know, at that age. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I. I mean, growing up, I mean, there wasn't much of a distinction between English, Russian, and Mongolian. That was just, okay, I'm either one would be, you know, I can, it could be in, mm. interchangeable. Right. And, f- but like, for, for example, food. 
definitely a, a huge thing to from culture to culture. Yes. Um, and 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 so, I mean, you're not gonna. I guess it, you could be in one in, in a city, maybe in England as well. You could tr- you could actually have uh, something that was uh, English for breakfast, for for lunch. You could have something that was Mongolian, and for dinner you could have something that's uh, um, you know Mandarin Chinese, for lack of a better distinction. But when you find yourself eating those cuisines, do you find yourself? gravitating towards that particular language for example not not really i mean it just as i said it really depends on who i'm with yeah i got you no you know i mean it's just the sensorial um i i feel is very powerful but yeah you know who you're talking to when you're talking to them so it doesn't really matter um you don't have that as an i don't issue. have that as an but, issue no i mean i do have i mean certain things will conjure up certain memories um or specific yeah times in these one of the particular cultures maybe but I don't I'm not that deep I don't think when I go to a restaurant <laughs> gotcha. you know can really transform into that culture and language. <laughs> if, you, if you got into theater you could really use that to your advantage <laughs> well that's the whole thing I think the language is you know, it, 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 it's intuitive to those who speak a single language. You, you sort of learn to use the words, blah, 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 you know, as I go on. But it's almost this point at which you then need to step back and, and let someone else speak so that you can learn. Yes. Now, I'm going to try this, but so just for the listeners out there to know which courses you offer. So, I mean, it looks like there's six currently on your site. Yes. So, um, I may pronounce you wrong, but Malagasy, mm-hmm. which is Madagascar language. Um, Ladino, which is a Judeo-Spanish language. Yes. Okay. Mongolian, obviously. Yoruba. Yoruba, which is a West African language. Yes. Ganti, which is from um, Manipur. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Ainu, which is a Japanese language. It's not a Japanese language. It's spoken in Hokkaido on the island of Japan. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's spoken there, yeah. Um, and so so I think those are the ones you currently offer, right? Yes. And then are you looking to expand it all? Or are there any plans on that? Or just right now kind of sticking with, with those six? Um, so we are in the process of finalizing our Sundanese course. Um, the, and the Sundanese... Yeah, so the, the it's, sorry, Sundanese is spoken on the island of Java in Indonesia. Okay. Um, so that's coming soon. I hope in the next couple of weeks, and then we are also working on Mapuche, um, which is spoken in Chile and Argentina. Oh, yeah. Mapuche, huh? Mm. Uh, so that should be good. But that one is sort of halfway through, um, and then we're also working on different products that we're going to be rolling out soon as well. So not courses, but different products. Oh, very cool. Products. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine what that is, but I, <laughs> I guess you can't tell us any for anything further. <laughs> not right now, but it's not. It's not. Uh, yeah, soon. Soon we'll have. Um, there'll be more information. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I think that's that's very cool. You know, because a lot of it's interesting. I wonder how people find you, um, because I mean, these are a bit unusual in terms of languages and, um, you know, places that people might travel. So I suppose if they're they're looking just online specifically for that and and that's where you get, or is it more like referrals? 
Um, so it really depends on the courses. Uh, so for Mongolian, I knew, yeah, people find us just by doing a Google, Google search usually. Mm-hmm. Um, with our other ones, I mean, no one, as you say, they're quite, uh, you know, they're not as well known as Mongolian and I knew. So no one is really searching Learn Gangte on Google, you know. So yeah. we have to think of different ways to attract people who are potentially interested. I mean, um, quite often a lot of our customers they as i said before you know they're travelers you know so they are they've got a particular as you know if they're learning mongolian they're learning mongolian because they've got a particular goal in mind okay they really want to go to mongolia um and travel around um with some of the other ones like gangte it's a bit more it you know it could be it's more usually they're more um uh the diaspora community living abroad so they want to maybe find out a little bit more about themselves uh, so it depends on what you know our our marketing strategy is different depending on what courses we have um Mm -hmm. but that's why we're rolling out these new products because that should hopefully um you know help in being more like the awareness awareness. yeah 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 gotcha yeah so one of the interesting um if you want to call it a product uh of you know that is shared i think uh universally um, I mean, somewhat film, right? So, I mean, I, I think that's one of the best ways to kind of immerse yourself into a culture. Of course, it has to be translated. You, you know, have to get ready to read the, um, the text below. Subtitles. The subtitles. Yes. And I often find myself split when I'm doing that, when I'm, when I'm watching a quote-unquote foreign film, I'm trying to read, but I'm also trying to watch the actors. I'm trying to listen to the the sounds that they're making when they're speaking the language that I'm fascinated by. But it's probably the closest thing to actually getting a cultural moment where you're sharing something that might, you know, truly be foreign. Um, Do you, I mean, are there any really good examples? Um, and, And this is just off the cuff. So I completely understand if you don't have an answer for this, but of films that you've seen that you've thought embodied um, a culture and also a spoken language of that culture? Uh, Well, you're right. Something I need to think about. (laughs) Um, I'll have to rack my brains through that. But I would would say, I think you're right. When it comes to watching films or I also think reading books is a really good way of learning a language as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Quite often, so you mentioned that Globetrotter Mongolian course, that one has a lot, you know, we go into a lot of detail um, in, into Mongolian stories, you know. Um, so, uh, I mean, a lot of our customers have appreciated that because they feel, you know, I, and, and they're not just, they're, they're children's stories. And they feel like actually, you know, reading children's stories, I, I really get to the heart of the culture because, you know, maybe their um, the message at the end of the story, you know, what, you know, that can give you a bit of insight into what the culture's like. Mm. Um, or you know the message or whatever it is Um, yeah so that's something that we do regularly as well yeah I mean it just when when I read a a, okay so let's take um, uh, Tolstoy Anna Karenina um, reading it in English that's pretty easy right so you're going to get a sense of what you know that it's a period piece and and Tolstoy was a, a, a tremendous writer, but you're also completely cheating. You're not reading it in the language that it was written in. 
So you're really hoping that the translator will understand how to have those when those moments come where it's difficult to translate the best way to put it in another language where it's wrapping itself around that and embodying more than just the sum of its parts. Yes. Um, and that's the, that's the thing with a movie, usually when it's translated and you're reading, you still have the experience of the sounds of things, but you don't, you know, so you're relying on again, that interpretation, but with reading, boy, I mean, I, you can't start reading a foreign language without learning it first, you know, mm. to the also with grammar. Yes, yes. Um, I, yeah, because actually I was, I was watching a film recently on Netflix, I think it was a Georgian film, um, and what I didn't like about it, about that was that it was dubbed, it had been dubbed, and I couldn't yeah. hear what, 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 what the language was like, um, or, you know, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, I'm sure it was dubbed very well, actually, but I would have preferred subtitles, so when I'm watching foreign films, I much prefer subtitles, as you say. Yeah. Yeah, A Wandering Earth, I believe it's called. It is a Chinese science fiction film that like grossed more than, I, I think it's one of the, the top grossing films in the world. Mm. And they have that on Netflix. But it it really, when you're watching a film and it's you have the subtitles, I, I find myself just trying so hard to like have a moment of <laughs> truth with it. And yet I'm still reading somebody else's writing. It's a little maddening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that would be a little bit difficult to try to learn a language that way. But I'm right. sure if you have a, a foundation of it, it, it would help to, you know, even take you a little bit further with it. Yeah, you're being split into a, a few different parts, right? So, I mean, that, that film in particular is science fiction, and it's, there's a lot to look at. But how can you really look at it when you're reading it, right. you know, right. and vice versa? So, you know... But that's very much like I would imagine it is walking into, you know, another country and listening to people talk. You can sort of smell what they're smelling. You can hear what they're hearing. But you're sort of having an out-of-body experience where you don't know what the heck is going on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I think also I remember um, sharing a dorm with one of my one of students who was learning Japanese um during my undergraduate and that was a that was a big motivation for him to learn Japanese was all the anime uh, you know and he learned it he learned yeah I mean his Japanese was just excellent you know from watching all the anime so I think it can be done right Persevere. that's like the, the motivator to actually immerse yourself in something and then you want to learn more about it there's there's no greater motivator yes yeah 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 and then in in languages now I know that you're not a linguist necessarily but the I just I have this fascination with the uh, what is the Kung tribe is that how you would say it with cliques that are used within the the I mean there are clique languages I'm not sure what that yeah. particular tribe is. yeah mm. I'm, I'm not saying it correctly but with cliques that's just whole other element so cool <laughs> it, it is really cool it is very cool I, I yeah that's something that I I also yeah doing reading about and um there was a girl that I met recently she was a postdoc I think at SOAS and obviously you know I was at SOAS for a little bit and you know what greater place to learn about click languages than SOAS I think um and she was yeah she she was doing a bit of research I can't actually remember what the community was that she was doing research into but yeah I mean she can she could speak it you know she could make the clicks the click sounds and there's a group of us and we're trying to emulate her and we just couldn't do it 
And it took her, I, I can't remember how long it took, because she was there, you know, she lived with the community, she was doing field work. Um, and she said that really helped her uh, with the fluency of the clicks. But yeah, it's not something that, you know, somebody can just say to you, okay, click now, you know, and then I'll teach you how to do it in five minutes, you can do it. I think it's yeah. a bit more complicated than that. But it's interesting. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah, I was told by someone who was um, Vietnamese that uh, I probably at this point in, in my age wouldn't be able to learn Vietnamese because of how difficult it is to learn the sounds, which I was, you know, extremely distressed by. <laughs> Wanted to prove them wrong, but, you know, couldn't even go there. <laughs> Did you even try? I wasn't given the, I wasn't given a chance to try. Oh, so. Well. There you go. I mean, there's, you know, a language, the, what's sound comes out of our mouths. So in many different ways, it can manifest itself. That's what's so fabulous about the diversity of languages is that we, in, in English, we, we only make so many sounds using the language that we speak, but there's a, a, literally a world of sounds out there to make. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's so important that you're doing the work that you're doing, Inky, if for anything, to save sounds yes yep same languages i read somewhere that well i had a couple of different um stats that i found one said uh said that one language becomes extinct every two weeks mm. um, another said that three and a half languages become extinct a year so i'm not sure which is you know closer but clearly um languages are, are becoming extinct mm. um rapidly yeah i mean i don't think anybody really knows but yes i go by the one every two weeks I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot, yeah. Yeah. But I'm... You know, so that's why I think it is great that you're doing what you're doing. And it's just, it's really interesting to think about. I never knew that there were 7,000 languages in the world because it just seems so dominated by just a few, mm. you know? Right. I And that's also the other side of things, too, where you have um, more dominant countries and, and cultures that you know, love to, 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 to integrate um, their language and, and, and help to use that as uh, how people communicate with each other. But it, it, it would definitely be wrong to assume that that's the only goal because all of the colors and sounds of the world are, you know, equally as important. Yes, that's right. And what, what makes people unique as well you know mm -hmm. I mean what makes communities exactly. unique and what makes me different to you and you know I was talking to somebody yesterday I do a lot of talking I realize I keep saying I was talking to somebody the other day but they they um they're from um they're, they're from Hong Kong and they were saying um that maybe you know not now obviously but you know maybe in the near future Cantonese might become an endangered language um, I'm not sure how true that is, but it's interesting that people are thinking about it, though, you know, that maybe my language isn't as safe as I thought, or, or that it's just entering their mind, you know, just not taking it for granted. And this is the language that we're going to be speaking. Yeah. Well, there's even research now that not to go out there, but here's the thing. Apparently, you can now wear a headpiece that was it was uh, conceived of in MIT mm -hmm. where you the computer reads the contraction um, of your vocal cords when you are thinking, because apparently you continue to move certain parts of your body um, when you're thinking auditorially, but not actually saying things. So it picks up on that. And then 
you can, in a closed loop, talk to this computer and it talks to you. That's when language is going to have a lot of problems. And we're really on the cusp of that. I mean, that's a, a form of innovation, but it's also, uh, I think, a form of alienating human beings to mm. each other. So, I mean, have you heard of this technology at all? I haven't actually, no. I've heard of the, I can't remember, it was like um, earpiece, was it Google or something, where yeah. yeah, when you're speaking to somebody, it translates it for you, so you don't even have to actually utter a sound to the person standing opposite you, because everything's done by these computers, and you think, what a waste. You know, why would, why would you do, I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it's good, you know, yeah, we talked about this before, I think dictionaries, you know, I think having um, an online footprint of these different languages and and an archive, I think that is good, but that only, that that just, that's one part of the problem, isn't it? I mean, or one part of the solution for a very big problem. Right. Well, it's like the tricorder effect, the, you know, Star Trek, you, I was marveled by the concept that you could have a master translator and so that you could always talk to a new civilization that you encountered just to make it effective, like in, in, the, in the most basic parts to make sure that, and you had this other underlying code to make sure that you didn't pollute, um, you know, their, their culture mm. if it was beyond a certain point. But isn't that what a tricorder would do? Mm. Inevitably, the problem is that finding technology to be resourceful, we then take out what's really human about language and about yeah. culture. So it's, we're in a rough patch right yeah, now. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword, really. Really it, It's true, it's true. I mean, that's why I don't ever want to, you know, that's, that's why I try bilingual. I mean, the speakers are so important to us. You know, I mean, it's very easy for us to offer these online courses as just online courses, um, but we don't want to do that. We don't want to remove that human element because it, it's what gives it life, Yeah. It really is. It, it's really about life. It's really about, I mean, that it's, it's, I don't think people think about this enough. And I do think that people are, I mean, I embrace technology so quickly. I, you know, I adapt to it and it, it pushes me further, but it also pushes me further away from the potential of humanness i think it, i mean that's that's a you know maybe an, an overblown statement but we really have to watch out in this in this modern day where we're going and where we're headed it's like for example painting if you thought about the way that it the time it took to mix color you know for 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 great master painters right um rembrandt what whomever george o'keefe okay so now you have all this and we we work at a creative firm and our most all of our um, you know, designers, they, they, they're, they're working on a computer. Mm. They're, they're talking about color with computers. They're talking about shape and form with computers. It's a way of formalizing a process to be able to make sure that there is like a brand that has sort of a seamless undercurrent of visual identity, but at the same time, boy, how did you make that blue? Well, if you ask somebody that 200 years ago, they had to get the ink from something, and usually it was something natural. Or there were also some horrific ways that they got inks. Um, there's a uh, museum of color in Harvard, in the Fogg Museum, I believe, and they you know, underline how different pigments were made, right? So even some from cow urine, for example. Mm. But 
I guess the point is, is that as technology makes it easier to do things and adapts things and we adopt that, we're losing the contents of why that thing was made in the first place. And it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm going on about it, but it's really important. So Inky, thank you so much for taking technology and figuring out a way to beat it at its own game, hopefully. <laughs> Well, hopefully, yeah. I actually thinking about what you've just been saying. Um, the, you know, I I do think that you know, uh, you know, you guys are designers, and I, I do think you have to be also very culturally aware when you're doing any form of marketing or branding, right? I mean, something that you presumably, I mean, if you're working with different different cultures or in different parts of the world, you can't just have this one template and. Is, is that right? I mean, is, I think... I would agree. Cause I, cause I, was, I would agree. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, you've got to know, okay, what colours are... Maybe maybe there are certain colours, if we go back to colour um, scenario, but maybe there are certain colours that are not applicable um, in certain cultures, you know, that some cultures don't like the colour red, for example, because it's seen as, you know, it's like death or something, you know, so you've got to be, yeah, you have to be culturally aware. And I think, you know, if you're a designer, if you're working anywhere, you have to be aware of where you are <laughs> you know you have to be aware of the you know if you want to be global yeah well so like a, a perfect example of that was a a, a a beverage that we were working on and um in their name there's a four and the number four when it comes to um uh certain uh, areas of asia i think china chinese think is death yeah that's right yeah. it means death yeah, yeah. Right? So, wow. I mean, we've got there. There's a complexity um, we would never realize, you know, existed. But finding that out, uh, you know, not only do you need to figure out how to deal with that um, and you do need to deal with it because death soda isn't really (laughs) going to fly. I mean, maybe, but (laughs) but like that's that's a perfect illustration example of so. Do you get clever? Do you learn what the the next number is or how do you do it? And that's like the whole point. I think a lot of the designs that we do, um, you know, they're they're closer to home for for a brand that is trying in the States. But I think even like ugly, I think it was ugly soda, uh, ugly water came from the UK more recently to the US. I've never heard of that, no. Yeah, so it's just made with... Um, different fruit essences, kind of like La Croix that's here. Oh, yeah, I do know that one, yeah. Yeah, but, and and so they brought it to the States, and at one point or another, I was talking to them. Um, we didn't end up getting involved, but it's even from the UK to the USA, there's a cultural, there's enough differences yeah. that you would need to think about tonality and think about clarity when it comes to one culture versus the other. Right. Okay, so, so. ugly... So, but for America, what are you saying? So ugly, it just wasn't the right, it wasn't, you couldn't use that word or? Uh, no, no, I think, no, it wasn't something as, um, it wasn't something as significant as that. It's more of like the tone of how you're setting up the brand to be released in the States. Like maybe, you know, visually the way that you're depicting it, um, clarifying it or, so you, you need to, it's like realizing that, okay, so here's the, the, the landscape here is going to be a little different. Maybe we can change it just enough so that it has, because I mean, the UK has some very interesting designs. They're like with products I find, and, but they're mm-hmm. very different. They're very different from the US, right. which, is, which is so cool. Because <laughs> if they were the same, that would kind of suck. 
Right. There is something to be said for making it more relevant to a certain culture, for sure. Um, so I think that's something to always just be conscious of. But just as you were saying, Inky, the uniqueness and what makes us all different is what keeps things interesting. So you don't want to homogenize everything either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the one other thing that I, I'm just thinking about this that really can sit anywhere is architecture. Where I think people are more open to now, even more so, buildings being completely different from one building to another and going, oh, that's interesting because they're able to maybe become a part of it. They can walk into it. They can walk around it. They can look at it. They have time. It exists. It's something fundamentally that like is a, a product of somebody making it and then there's it sits there, right? So another thing like that would be sculpture, but not a lot of people are not as open to, especially abstract sculpture, for example, or painting or music is another cultural um, you know, I think a lot of people don't listen to necessarily Spanish music, but listen to English music. But boy, if you do, and you just listen to it for the music, even if you don't understand what's being said, there's a significant cultural, you know, importance to that experience that you can, without even understanding what the translation is, feel yeah. and become a part of, you know, and so connecting it with words is even so much cooler and more important. Yeah, I think your point about the architecture is quite interesting because I've I've often thought that you know when you're talking about um, different types of cultural heritage that that will survive um, the death of the skills that brought to, brought them to life. So like ancient architecture lives on after ancient architects, right? Aztec jewelry survives the yeah. uh, you know the fall of the Aztec civilization, but you know with language you can't it can't truly live on without being passed down from generation to generation and whatever you want to mean by that you know generation to generation I mean we're teaching outsiders you know we're teaching foreigners um but no not always obviously we do have diaspora you know but we're but we're passing it down orally and I think that's really important um and that's why we never want to lose that human element because you know, it goes against everything that we stand for. Right. Right. Well, it, it's it's a form of beauty, but it's also a form of intelligence. That's what language. Yeah, language knowledge. Really exactly. Yeah, is, knowledge is, is being passed down. Yeah. yeah. And 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 even so now, so like there's just one other example of something interesting. More recently, I believe they've figured out how to take ancient scrolls and X-ray them to such a degree that mm -hmm. they don't have to open them, which often for older things like that, they can crumble apart to figure out how to mm. read the text or at least get the text that's on them. So, I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we're finding that we can open ourselves to learn from the past, yet that element of speaking it, the, Ros the Rosetta Stone was, I think, a huge strange thing to me when I was growing up. They talked about that you need a Rosetta Stone to learn different languages. There was one in particular they were using to triangulate language that ah. wasn't spoken. So that stood in my mind as an example of how we're desperate to have tools to learn ancient languages. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's also a very interesting point because, you know, if you're walking around, um, was it the British Museum, I think, you know, you walk around the British Museum and um, there's different exhibitions on and, you know, if you walk around, say, for example, the Chinese exhibit, 
you can still read that. Yeah. You know, you can still read that in Chinese. But, you know, if you're walking around the Egyptian exhibit, for example, you can't read Egyptian hieroglyphs. You know, and there's lots of other forms of writing that people can no longer read. And actually Chinese has managed to withstand the time. You know, it's there. It's still people can read it. Um, yeah. So yeah. anyway, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. No, I mean, it really is. It, it really is. It's, it's strange how Egyptian... You, you walk in the Met, for example, in, in, in New York, and there's, there's all of this information, none of which, unless you're relying on, you know, uh, anthropologist or um, archaeologist or, or, or whatever format that's disseminating it for you, still you're looking at a wall of language and have no idea yes. what's being mm. said. Crazy. It is crazy. Well, yeah, I mean... Thank you so much, Inky. Yes, thank you. This has really been concept. wonderful. Yeah. Yes. No, thank you. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> yes, and good luck with everything. Yeah, thank you We're very much. Those products coming out. Yes, <laughs> I will let you know. I'll send Alex a LinkedIn message or something. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we can speak the, the language of LinkedIn together. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm terrible at LinkedIn, though. I never go on it, but yeah. I, I don't to... know. I think you're pretty good. You you take it seriously, at least. When you do see something, you're like, oh, no, it's another method from Alex. <laughs> I guess I'll read it. <laughs> Busted. <laughs> yeah. well, thank you. Great talking to you. No, thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That was Inky Gibbons from Tribolingual. Thanks so much, Inky. If you'd like to know more about Tribolingual, visit tribolingual.com and check out some of the languages that they have there where you can take some courses. It's pretty amazing stuff. Also, if you'd like to learn more about Brand First, you can visit brandfirstnj.com. So don't forget to rate us on iTunes and wherever else you can, and hopefully with a good rating. Also, the next two episodes coming up are one, we talk to Paul Shapiro, author of Clean Meat, a really interesting discussion. And then we talk to the co-founder of Wild Earth, Ryan Bethencourt, about many different things. Both podcasts are available pretty much at the same time as Tribolingual, so you should have already seen them pop up. Check it out. Leave us a note. Do something.